Good morning, Restoration Church. Uh, it is my joy to be able to serve you through the preaching of God's Word this morning. And before I do that, little ones, you can go and meet your teachers in the back. Uh, and let me encourage you all to look at the little ones as they run back and be encouraged that every week disciples are being made through Restoration Kids. So thank you to all of you that serve and have uh, part in that. Uh, for us. Uh, Before I preach and open God's word, let me pray for us. God, your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and attitude of the heart. And so we ask this morning that you would lay us bare with your word and cover us with the balm of the gospel that we might look toward Christ and behold Him, that we might become like Him. It's in His name that we pray, the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, right at 55 years ago, a young woman by the name of Florence Chadwick set out to accomplish something few had done before. And that was swim the 20-plus miles from Catalina Island to the mainland of California. So on July 4th, 1952, she slipped into the waters and started to swim hour after hour after hour. And of course, that area of the world, the, the fog began to sweep across the water. And nearly 16 hours into her endeavor, she called out to the lifeboats that were beside her to get her out. Her mother was in one of those boats and said, Florence, you're almost there. You can make it. But she eventually stopped swimming, and so the boats had to pull her out. And it wasn't until she was on the boat that she realized shore was less than a half a mile away. At a news conference the next day, she said, quote, All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it, end quote. I think if we're honest, sometimes we're like Florence. Sometimes we feel like giving up because we're tired and we don't feel like we have the strength to stay afloat any longer. But what if, what if we could see the shore? Would that make a difference? Well, that's what the Apostle Paul is calling our attention to this morning. Pressing on, not aimlessly, but toward the ultimate goal. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. And I'm going to focus on verses 12 through 16, but I'm going to start reading for us in verse 7. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Philippi, verse 7 of chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count all things as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith, that I may know him 
and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or already am perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. If anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So verses 7 through 11 erupt from Paul's pen with gospel beauty and heavenly hope. Because Paul understands that a right standing before God is not based upon what he does but on what Jesus has done. Righteousness comes not from Paul's obedience, but God's grace. And because of this, Paul has a passionate longing to enjoy Christ, to advance the gospel of Christ, as we've been seeing throughout this letter. Why? So that his joy might be complete. And so the joy of the Philippians might be complete. Paul knows the surpassing worth of Christ is what fills the longing of his soul. And so he counts everything else as lost compared to Christ. And we read Paul's words, the intensity of his spiritual longing, and if we're honest, it makes us feel a bit uneasy. We think of Paul as like this spiritual superman, his cape flapping in the wind as he stands before the church in Philippi saying, to live is Christ and die is gain. Cut it all as loss for the surpassing worth of Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always. And we're like, I could never get there. He's this super spiritual guy and I'm just a mere human. But Paul is not a spiritual superman. He is a wise and a gracious and a humble and, yes, an imperfect pastor. And so after his volcanic explosion and erupting spiritual desires, he immediately tells the Philippians he is not perfect. And because he is not perfect, he presses on. That's what Paul is calling the Philippians to and us to this morning. Look again at verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. What way, Paul? Well, the way that I just spelled out in verses 12 through 14. And that's where we'll spend the bulk of our time. So in verses 12 through 14, Paul holds himself up as an example. And then in verses 15 and 16, he gives a brief exhortation. And so Paul is saying maturing Christians follow his example and listen to his exhortation. But what about those that aren't as mature, Paul? Well, he says in verse 15, God will reveal it to you. In other words, stay teachable and God will show you where you need to grow. But no Christian, nobody should wait until they think they have it all figured out before looking to Christ. That's what he says in verse 16. Only, that is, no matter what, 
let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul is telling Grace Church Philippi, you may not have every aspect of your theology figured out, but you know something that is true because I keep saying to you, it is of no trouble to me to write the same things to you and it's safe for you. What is that, Paul? It's the gospel. You know the gospel is true, so hold true to that, Philippi. And as you press on in that, you will grow all the more. So Paul's example and exhortation, perfection in the Christian life is not required. But pressing on toward Christ is. There's our guiding thought for this morning. Perfection in the Christian life is not required. But pressing on toward Christ is. Let's look at each one of those. Perfection is not required. Look there again in your Bibles at verse 12. Not that I have already attained this or already am perfect. Notice those first two words. Not that. Paul is offering an instant disclaimer. Yes, he understands his justification, his position before God is based solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what we just read in verses 7 through 11. But, though he's perfect in his position, he is not perfect in his practice, his sanctification. So it's important to realize that what we read Paul's words as he's evaluating his own life. In verses 12 through 16, Paul is not talking about the how of salvation, how, how we're made right with God. He's talking about the so what, what comes after flowing out of our relationship with God. Because remember, over the past two weeks, Nathan has beautifully laid out those verses in 1 through 11 that talks about how Paul has already obtained salvation, his justification. Look at verse 9. Through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, not from Paul, from God, that depends on faith, not on effort. So Paul's position before God is secure by grace, through faith in Christ alone. But now in verse 12, he says, I've not already obtained this. Well, what is Paul talking about? What we see in verses 10 and 11, he wants to know Christ fully and become like Christ in his death. That's what he's talking about. And then if you want to summarize it, just keep reading the verse, verse 12. Or already am perfect. Paul is not what he wants to be. And Paul is not where he will be. And so Paul is saying, though he has these intense spiritual longings to know Christ intimately, he's not arrived. He is not perfect. He doesn't know Jesus fully, and he's not like Christ completely. Paul knows he has shortcomings, failures, weaknesses, and still struggles with sin. And just to make sure Philippi gets it, just to make sure Restoration Church, we get it. What does he say in verse 13? Brothers or brothers and sisters... I do not consider that I have made it my own. With a force of repetition, Paul says yet again, I've not arrived. And notice how he addresses the church. Brothers or brothers and sisters. Paul does not place himself above the Philippians. He's right beside of them. 
as a fellow brother. He is stressing the incompleteness of his spiritual journey. I do not consider that I've made it my own. I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I ought to be. This is amazing when you stop and think about Paul's conversion. You can go read that in the book of Acts, chapter 9. Meets the Lord Jesus face to face. And at this point when he's writing, it's 25 to 30 years after he's been converted to Christ. 25 or 30 years. That's older than most of you have been alive. He's been following Jesus for that long. He's planted churches. He's endured suffering. He wrote scripture. He shared the gospel boldly. He discipled others regularly. And he confesses, I have not arrived. He freely admits his need to grow in Christ-like maturity. Perfection is not required in the Christian life. This should do at least two things for us. It should comfort us. And it should humble us. So Paul's word should comfort you, Christian. Think about how wonderful it is. The apostle Paul is not perfect. Paul understands the depth of his sin. In 1 Timothy, he writes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The apostle Paul understands his insufficiency. Go read 2 Corinthians 3 this afternoon. Paul says, I'm not sufficient in myself for anything. He feels woefully inadequate. Yet God makes him sufficient. And then again, in the end of 2 Corinthians, he knows his weakness. He writes, I will boast all the more gladly in my strengths, my awesome abilities. No, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. Paul is not ashamed to talk about his sin, his struggles, his shortcomings. And so these verses are balm to my soul. They're like a release valve, letting this pressure out that that entices me to pretend that I'm stronger and more capable than I am. I don't know if you're like me, but I'll just be honest. And I've got internal pride that bubbles up and external expectations around me that entice me to pretend that my sin is minimal, my struggles are limited, and my shortcomings are none, and just to put on a plastic smile and pretend like everything is okay. Think about Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. They call us to publicly broadcast our perfection. Yet, pay attention to your next private Google search. Do you want to broadcast that? Probably not. I'm flawed. And finite. I was on my knees yesterday asking forgiveness from a five-year-old. But I take comfort because Paul didn't arrive either. And if we pretend that we're not flawed, if we pretend that we're not finite, we enter into the danger of what I call Barbie doll Christianity. So I've got two daughters. We've got hair bows, pink explosions all over our house. A few Barbie dolls. If you've ever picked up a Barbie doll, or men, your Ken doll, uh, you'll notice a few things as you pick them up. 
You got the airbrushed facial features with just the right amount of smile, as I say, not to make them look silly or creepy. It's like this perfect perfection. They've got all the greatest clothes and accessories. Pay attention to their teeth. Glowing white. And perfect hair. But it's all fake. It's all fake. Not only are the external body proportions unrealistic to the point of becoming impossible inside, if you take them apart, I have. If you take them apart, they're hollow. There's nothing of substance in there. Yet, aren't we tempted to live our Christian lives the same way? Plastic smiles and superficial made strength so we look good on the outside. But if we live this way, we will be just like those dolls, hollow and incomplete on the inside. Christian, brother and sister, if you only pretend to have weaknesses and shortcomings, you can only pretend to need the strength of Christ and the support of others. If you only pretend that you sin, you can only pretend that you're forgiven in Christ. If you only pretend to struggle with sin, you can only pretend that you need the help of the Spirit and support of community group brothers and sisters. If you only pretend you have nothing real to offer others and you deny them the opportunity to speak something real into your own life. So my plea for us this morning is do not pretend. Feel the comfort of the words of Christ Not that I've already attained this or already am perfect. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I am a flawed and a finite man. And so are you. Verse 12 and 13 give us permission who we are. Imperfect, flawed, needy, finite, sinful. It's okay to not be okay. And it gets better. You don't have to find your identity in not being okay. Christ is enough. Because when we truly understand this, when we truly embrace our sin and our imperfections, we look to Christ and He becomes our identity. He becomes our perfection. He becomes our righteousness. So don't pretend like you're perfect. Press on to the One who is Jesus Christ. For my friends that are not Christians, I hope this encourages you, perhaps in a roundabout way. Maybe you showed up here this morning thinking that Christians are those who think they're morally superior and have it all figured out. Well, sorry, not true. But I hope that you're encouraged. Jesus does not come for the prim and proper. He comes for the weak and wobbly who know their faults and their limitations. Jesus does not come for those who think they're morally superior, but those who confess their rebellion against God's authority. Those who acknowledge their sin. And friend, let me encourage you and tell you what sin is. Sin is not just limited to what we do. Sin is what we love. Sin is not just the violation of God's law. It's a disordering of our loves that places anything on on our heart to supreme other than Christ. The issue, the main issue is not just what we do. The main issue is what we love. 
So we can't just fix our behavior. We need something to happen in our heart. And so Jesus comes for those who confess their sin and are not too proud to drink from the fountain of amazing grace that the Spirit would come into our life and give us new life and new loves. That's what we see happening to Paul as Nathan preached a couple weeks ago. So the church is not this museum for people that are plastic smiles and perfect. It's a hospital for broken sinners that are looking to Christ and going out and taking that news to others. So we here at Restoration Church, you heard Nathan pray this, we are a group of deeply flawed people. And so if you're not following Christ, we invite you to join us. We invite you to join us as we find hope, strength, delight in Jesus Christ. If you want to know more about that, ask the person that brought you. If you just came by yourself, come find me, come find Nathan, come find anybody you've seen up here. We'd be happy to talk to you about this. So Paul's words should comfort us, but that's not all they should do. They should also humble us. Be humble. You're not perfect. See, the problem with some of us is, is we think we're more mature than we really are. We may not say it out loud, but we're pretty impressed with ourselves. Our theological knowledge is high. Our obedience is clear. Our spirituality is unquestionable, and we know it. And we like others to know it as well. And so, if this is where you are, if you're self-righteously impressed with yourself, you're in a very dangerous place. You'll smugly compare yourselves to others just thinking about how much better you are. It's a point where you'll minimize or excuse your sin thinking the problem is always with the other. It's a point where you'll spend more time defending yourself rather than admitting your weaknesses in pursuing Christ. I can tell you in my brief pastoral ministry of eight plus years, some of the hardest people to disciple and counsel are those who think they're more mature than they actually are. If Paul hasn't arrived, we haven't arrived. Paul was an impressive dude. So if we put it in today's terms, He'd be authoring books. He'd be speaking at conferences. His Twitter following would be large. His email would have lots of acronyms after his signature. His spiritual resume would be on compare. Yet he is thoroughly unimpressed with himself. Thoroughly unimpressed with himself. It's like the more Paul grows, the more he realizes his sin and shortcomings. And this is the paradox of the Christian life. This is the paradox. The most mature Christians are those who are not impressed with themselves. The most mature Christians are those who understand their sin and their shortcomings, and because of that, they look to Christ. And so the degree to which we understand our sin will determine the size of our gospel. How much we understand our weaknesses will determine the extent of our wonder in Christ. Or to say it a third way, There is a direct correlation between my need for Christ and my delight in Christ. There is a direct correlation between my need for Christ and my delight in Christ. So if I think my sins are shallow and my weaknesses are few, I'm going to need Christ about about a pint-sized glass. And that's how much I'll enjoy him. 
But if I understand my sins are plenty and my weaknesses are much, my delight and need for Christ will be more like the size of the Grand Canyon. Direct correlation. Let me encourage you to go this afternoon and read Jesus' words in Luke chapter 7, verses 41 through 49. You'll see this is what he teaches. I didn't make this up. This is, I'm quoting Jesus. Jesus essentially says, Whoever is forgiven little, loves little. Whoever is forgiven much, loves much. That's right. So Paul knew that he was forgiven much, so he loves much. You get this, inside Paul, you have this tension of a joyful dissatisfaction. A joyful dissatisfaction. See, because Paul has complete, utmost joy in Christ because he knows he's enough no matter what. Yet he's dissatisfied with himself. Joyful dissatisfaction. That's why a couple of weeks ago we heard Paul's plea. I want to know Christ more. I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, any means possible. I want to attain the resurrection from the dead. That is, I want to, I want to see Christ. And this joyful dissatisfaction is a blessed state. Jesus himself, one of the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are satisfied where they are. Uh -uh. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So Restoration Church, my plea and my prayer is that we'd be a church that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Because then in Christ we will be satisfied as we read God's word together, as we pray together, as we fellowship together. So Restoration Church, we're not perfect. Take comfort in that. And Restoration Church, we're not perfect. Be humbled by that. Perfection in the Christian life is not required. But pressing on toward Christ is required. Pressing on toward Christ is required. Look again at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or already am perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Now drop down to verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize, Paul says. Twice in these verses, Paul says the same thing. I press on. That's present tense. That's continual action. Paul's not saying he thinks pressing on is a good idea. Paul's not saying, hey, I'll start that tomorrow. Tomorrow never comes. Paul says, right here, right now, I press on toward Christ, pursuing him, chasing after him, grinding it out for Christ, laboring for Christ. And notice what Paul's honest assessment about himself does. His imperfections do not paralyze him. His imperfections do not make him pout in self-pity. And his imperfections do not make him pat himself on the back and say, well, everybody's messed up. I guess I'm just okay the way I am. No. His imperfections don't do any of those things. He's not paralyzed by them. He's not pouting over them. And he's not patting himself on the back. His imperfections propel him to the one who is perfect, to Christ. And the, the language here 
which Paul often uses in his letters, is that of an athletic competition. So you can think of a runner, maybe get in your mind, Usain Bolt as he's getting ready to take off on the 100 meters. I mean, you just look at the camera, and it's like every muscle is just there, ready to go. The gun goes, and every muscle fiber is engaged with intense, extreme focus on the finish line as he just blows the competition away. Engaged. Maximum effort running a race. So yes, the same Paul who just wrote, you cannot obtain righteousness by your efforts, is now determined to make every effort to live the righteous life. He wants his earthly life to be a rehearsal of the life that is to come. Paul is having a dress rehearsal as it is. And this is the call of the Scriptures. In Christ, you are holy. Now act like it. In Christ, you are holy. Now act like it. This requires hard work. Paul, Remember how Paul said, it's, it's not hard for me to write the same things to you? He, did, he wrote the same thing back in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, if you remember. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's writing the same thing just in a different way. So stressing the necessity of obedience does not undermine our confidence in a gospel of by grace through faith. Faith and good works are both required. Yes. One, faith is the root of our salvation. Good works is the fruit of our salvation. Good works are required not to earn, but they evidence that we are truly saved. So saving faith is not just a one-time decision to trust Jesus died for your sins and rose again. It's an ongoing treasuring of Christ that makes me want to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. That's what it is. So effort in the Christian life does not undermine the gospel. It's fueled by it. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Effort, obedience, is not always a nasty, legalistically motivated word. I love grace, but there's also got to be a category for effort. Listen to these verses. Train yourself for godliness. For to this end we toil and strive. 1 Timothy 4. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election, sir. 2 Peter 1. I discipline my body and keep it under control. 1 Corinthians 9. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12. And how about the words of Christ himself? If your hand or foot cause you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye cause you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Hard words are not always harmful words. Jesus and Paul agree. Pursue holiness. Press on. The Scriptures call us to wrestle, work out, meditate, toil, strive, press on, look, 
consider, watch, examine, run, train, submit, fight, deny, persevere, resist, follow, kill, pray, gouge out, cut off, and more. Trusting does not put an end to trying. Savoring Jesus does not negate striving to look like Him. The gospel creates a people who will hunger and thirst for righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we are not spectators in the stands. We are runners in a race. We are not called to easy passivity, but rigorous activity. Pursuit of Christ cannot be reduced to the margins of your life. Christianity is not a hobby. If you treat Christianity as a hobby, you'll be thoroughly frustrated. It's not a hobby. The Christian life is one of pressing on, intentional, regular, earnest, Christ-dependent, Spirit-empowered, faith-fueled, gospel-driven, grace-motivated, God-glorifying, joyful, working out, pressing on toward the goal, Christ Jesus. That's what Paul's calling us to. Perfection is not required. Pressing on toward Christ is. So yes, press on by reading your Bible regularly. I know, Joey, I know that. That's, praise God, do you do it? Do you press on toward Christ and meet with Him in the Word? Press on toward Christ by meeting with Him in prayer. Press on by telling your coworker, your classmate, your neighbor about Christ. Press on by inviting other people to correct you and critique you. Press on by giving regularly and sacrificially to the gospel ministry of Restoration Church. Press on by identifying evidences of grace in other brothers and sisters. Press on by showing a corping prayer at 9.30s and praying for 45 minutes. Press on by finding others and regularly discipling them. Press on by asking others to disciple you and meet for coffee. Press on. By going to the person that's struggling, just listening to them. Press on by reading good books. And do all of this in gospel-centered community. And I didn't just like, because we like community here, import that in like out of nowhere. Look at verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. We have to press on in the midst of a community because we need help, and guess what? So do they. It's a mutually encouragement as we press on together. Now, having said all that, some of you may already be thinking like all the things that you need to do to go press on toward Christ. You're already thinking about, I'm going to go read you know, Psalm 119 and memorize this week. Then I'm going to go look up every word on effort. Then I'm going to break out Wayne Grudem's systematic theology that I've been meaning to read. So I'm going to start reading it a chapter per day until I finish. You're starting to think all that stuff. You might do that for a day or two, but then you're going to fall flat. Don't make your goals self-centered. Make them Christ-honoring. Make them Christ-honoring. Be realistic about what this looks like. Talk to a friend, pray, and then pick a couple areas in your life where God would have you press on. 
Pick a couple areas and focus on those. Because remember, small seeds that are continually watered by God's grace in time grow into large trees. That's what happens. So pressing on toward Christ takes long obedience in the same direction. There are no shortcuts. Plotting day after day after day, striving to behold Jesus in both the momentous and the mundane that you might become like him. That's what Jesus is calling us to. And Paul is calling us to follow his example. And notice why. Why does Paul press on toward Christ? Verse 12. I press on to make it my own because, massively important word. If you write in your Bibles, underline, circle, highlight, star, whatever you do. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. There's Paul's reason. His resolve to press on is because Christ owns him. Not so that. Because Not so that. And notice what the text says. Has made. That's past tense. It's complete. It's done. What we are called to do is based entirely on what Jesus has already done. From the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. The ultimate work is done. And Paul is saying the same thing in a different way in verse 14 when he references the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This call is not just this possibility and this invitation to salvation. This is the definite purchasing of salvation for those that are in Christ. Paul's saying, I've been called, I've been purchased by Christ and called to it. And because of that, because of that, then I will press on. So the decisive factor in Paul pressing on is not His calling out and holding on to God. No. The decisive factor in Paul's pressing on is God's calling and keeping Paul. That's the decisive factor. And so the appeal here is not a motivated by a try harder, do better plea so that you can earn God's approval. Paul is not saying become morally superior. That's exactly what he just said against. Remember? Put no confidence in the flesh. That's what Paul said. So if you're here and you're trying to earn God's approval, or if you've understood me to say, press on to earn God's approval, that's not what Scripture says, it's not what I'm saying. You cannot earn God's approval with moral effort or religious deeds. God is too big, He's too powerful, He's too beautiful to be bought off with our religious deeds and good works. So, you might have the best equipment in the world, you might be very strong, and you might try to shoot an arrow and hit the moon. I don't care how strong you are, I don't care how good your intentions are, you're never going to hit it with a bow and arrow. You'll fall woefully short. So it is with God. We might have great intentions, we might even think we're awesome, but if left to ourselves, we're going to fall woefully short. So do not press on so that God will be pleased with you. Press on because in Christ, he already is pleased with you. Trusting in Christ comes before pressing on toward Christ. And Paul knows this. So Paul presses on because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He knows that Jesus is fully God and took on flesh, becoming fully human. He knows Jesus lived a joy-filled life of worship. Paul knows that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient 
obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He knows that Jesus rose from the dead and is highly exalted and every knee should and will bow to him. Paul knows that he's been purchased by Christ, so he presses on to become like Christ. Restoration Church, this is our motivation too. Because Christ Jesus owns us, we press on. You've been purchased from the grips of Satan, so press on. You've been purchased from the guilt of sin, so press on. You've been purchased from the grave of eternal death, so press on. This is the motivation, the unbreakable grip of the Savior. And because of that, Paul's able to to press on, to focus on the future and forget the past. Look at verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. Paul has a single-minded zeal, a one thing, Christ. And that has two parts. One thing, Christ. Two parts. Forgetting the past, striving to the future. When Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, I take this to mean forgetting anything that hinders your pursuit of Christ. It does not mean memory has no place in the Christian life. Many battles are won by remembered mercies. We're going to do that here this morning at the Lord's table. We're going to look back and remember the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. So the point is not never look back. I think what Paul is saying, don't look back just two days or ten days or ten years. When you look back, look back 2,000 years. Look back to the cross. That's how far you need to look back and evaluate your life in light of that. So God is telling us to have selective amnesia. He's telling you, Forget the guilt of past sins committed. Don't let that weigh you down. But Joe, you don't, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how messed up I am. I don't care. You cannot out God's grace. There is there now for no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall become white as snow. Isaiah 1. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Forget what lies behind by not letting your past sins and failures discourage you. Repent. Trust Christ. He paid it all. And press on. Forget the shame of past sins committed against you. Some of you aren't weighed down by what you've done, but what's been what's done to you. So you've been abused or violated in some way, and so now you feel unclean and dirty and unworthy, and you can't press on toward Christ. And Christ says, no, in me you are clean, you are worthy, you are holy. Press on. Forget the bitterness of past sins committed against you. As the saying goes, you don't hold a grudge, it holds you. You've got to press on, letting, letting Christ be the one who forgives and takes vengeance. And press on loving even your enemy. And yes, we need to forget our past successes. Dwelling on memories of success can make us arrogant and self-satisfied. You cannot press on to Christ only by remembering past success any more than a runner can win a race by remembering past races won. Praise God for past successes. Give humble thanks. 
Use them to be motivated, but do not rely on them to lay hold of Christ. So take some time this week to think about areas of your past that you need to forget. Ask a trusted brother or sister to help you with that. And when you do this, when you look back, all the way back to an empty tomb, you'll be well positioned to strain forward. Paul says he strains forward to what lies ahead. What lies ahead? Verse 14, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's that? What's the goal? What's the prize? Jesus. Paul said in verse 8, I want to gain Christ. Now look in your Bibles at chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what lies ahead for Paul. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. What lies ahead for Paul is heaven. Unbroken communion with Christ, enjoying him as he enjoys us. What lies ahead for Paul is heaven. All of God's people enjoying this world as it was always meant to be. Death, decay, disease, eliminated, suffering, sin, and sorrow eradicated. What lies ahead for Paul is heaven, the goal, the prize, Jesus the Christ. That's our goal, church. Our prize is enjoying him and becoming fully like him. What lies ahead is all that it means to be truly human, remade in the image of Christ with redeemed bodies, enjoying this world, yes, this world as it was always meant to be, eating, laughing, playing, listening to good music, having fun, playing sports, enjoying Christ, beholding the risen beauty of Jesus together as God's people. That's what lies ahead. That's why we press on. That's what awaits those who respond to God's grace and by His grace press on. If that doesn't describe you, will you respond this morning? Will you confess your imperfection and lay hold of the perfection of Christ? Not by striving, but by trusting Him. And Restoration Church, remember, perfection in the Christian life is not required, but pressing on is One day, yes, one day, we will be perfect, enjoying Christ Jesus together with all God's people in a perfectly restored world, worshiping Christ. Remember Florence's words. All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. It would have made all the difference for Florence if she could have seen the shore. And a couple of months later, she tried that swim again. And guess what? She made it. She pressed on because she could see the shore. And the same is true for us. In this life, we live among the fog of this world, hurts and hardships, wounds and weaknesses, doubts and difficulties. But the shore is just ahead. The shore is a person, Christ Jesus. The shore is a place heaven. Let's press on until we get there. We're not perfect now, but let's press on toward the goal, toward the one who is perfect. Because you know why? We are bound for the promised land. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your word. Use it to encourage us, to stir our affections for Christ, who laid down his life for us, who purchased us that we might press on. Do this, Lord, we ask. Remind us that we are not perfect, but that does not need to to define us because Christ Jesus is perfect and he is our righteousness. We thank you. We thank you that we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform us to be like him as he is. Amen.